My guest on this week's episode of the Rebel Matters podcast is an ex-prisoner of war who served 15 years in jail as a member of the Republican movement. He was on the blanket protest and the no-wash protest in the Longcast jail just outside of Belfast and is a very well-known community activist in Belfast and further afield. The first time I met Podrick McCutter was when I was 16 years old in Manskull Farsta sitting with GCSEs and he was walking up and down the aisles making sure none of us were copying each other. It was great to sit down with Podrick and have a long conversation and I'm very grateful to him for taking the time out of his day to sit down and record this episode. I hope you enjoy this insight into Podrick's personal story. My conversation with Podrick was recorded in my mum's living room over the June bank holiday weekend when I was up home for a couple of days. Later on that evening, I was on BBC Radio Ulster and I did a wee interview with him on, as a follow-on from a brilliant video that was posted online by Kevin Cahill on the effects that negative body image can have on your mental well-being. This is a massive issue for us here at Ackley and we work around the clock to promote ourselves in a positive way and build our training system in a way that helps build people's confidence and build people up instead of playing on people's insecurities and making them feel less confident to get them in the door. So this episode of the Rebel Matters podcast comes with a bit of an add-on. I made an extended blog post about that issue and put it on our website, aclai.ie, so you can check that out because I find it a little bit frustrating and a little bit hard when I'm on the radio for two minutes to try and explain such a, a, an important and such a big issue. So that's why I put that blog post together and you can check that out in your own time. I also want to remind you about the upcoming event that we have in Ackley, which is the Gym Jam on the 21st of July at 6pm. This is an event that we're hosting for the very first time in aid of the Irish Wheelchair Rugby team and our very own coach, Alan Deneen, who are going to the World Championships in Australia, in Sydney, uh, in August. And they have very little funding given to them for this tour, even though the quali- they finished first in the qualifiers for the World Championships to qualify for this competition. And they're going to be going down under to represent the green, white and gold. So we've come together as a community and we're going to organise this event and run it. It's going to be a brilliant night. We've got a class lineup. Bon Voyage, Kneecap, DJ Senior, Barry, Stevie G, Darren Kelly, County Venal, Aoife O'Neill, B2B, Keir Brady, Lisa Owen, DJ Geronimo Flex are all going to be here doing sets late into the night. It's an over-18s event. You can get your tickets at Ackley or from Soma Coffee Shop on Tucky Street. Get behind that event. Help us get Alan and the Irish Wheelchair Rugby team down under to do the business for the green, white and gold. Don't forget that if you're in the market for some personal training, you can book a free consultation through the Ackley website, aclai.ie. Come in for 20 minutes to 30 minutes, sit down with me and we'll work out a really good plan to help you get to where you want to be with your health and your fitness, your sports performance or your basic gymnastics strength or strength and conditioning skills. It's completely free of charge. It's 20 20 minutes to 30 minutes and we'll hook you up with a really good plan. So keep that in mind if you're in the market for a bit of health and fitness or a bit of personal training. We'll look after you. One of the main reasons that I wanted to record this conversation with Podrick is that I feel like there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about the conflict in the north, especially in the south of Ireland. I grew up in West Belfast and I moved to the south when I was 18 years of age. I attended the University of Limerick for six years and I moved to Cork after that and I've been here ever since. People's perception about what happened in the north is vastly different from what my brothers and I, my family, my friends and the older generation seen with their eyes and experienced on the street in Belfast during the times of conflict and in more recent times as well. So on that note, let's jump right into the conversation with Podrick McCutter. Right, where we start? Wherever you want. What year were we born? 
uh, August 1957 in Malone Hospital, just off Sandy Road. Giving away your age, or <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, what was it like at the time growing up in Belfast? Well, where I grew up, I grew up in Riverdale, and uh, for the first ten years of my life, I went to Holy Child Primary School in Anderson and uh, it was very sound, you know. Uh, it was a big family office. They ended up there was ten children, my mother and father, and uh, then we moved to Lennon in October nineteen sixty seven, just after I uh, turned ten, and then I used to walk down to school. My last latter months in primary school was in Casement Park. We had a, it was a classroom up in one uh, in the stand. Was what for me it was the best time I was ever at school because days like this, you know, nice sunny days, we wouldn't doubt our playground was the pitch and uh, and I was I was always a sporty type I wasn't particularly good at it but I always loved uh, soccer hurling football and stuff like this then uh, in 1969 my first uh, that was my first year in the South School but it was closed for the summer because uh, the summer of 1969 was as we all know was a turbulent year in Belfast and there was a lot of people who were forced out of their homes were staying in the school over the summer so the school was put back for a week or something as kids even though it was our first day in uh, secondary school it was absolutely brilliant September of 19 start of September 1969 and it was around about that time during that summer period that where we lived in Lennon we weren't particularly affected by the conflict which was emerging in Ardoy and the Short Strand obviously Derry and places like this here and as a young lad even though it was only a uh, 11 or 12 I was becoming aware of politics I uh, grew up in a Republican family I was uh, mother and father would have encouraged all of us to read as much as we could do you know but it's, you know as your kid your your mother dad says read that and you sort of rebel about you know but but then I started getting uh, interested in it and uh, but even though at that time we I became aware of what was happening down around Bombay Street uh, in the falls it wasn't the lower falls but the British referred to it as the lower falls but down the falls uh, you're starting to see things happening you're starting to see uh, cops that have, not that I would ever seen the cops as good people but you very rarely would have seen RUC people about RUC men uh, until about 1969 they started coming to our areas started uh, uh, raiding houses uh, and during all that time you had to go to school you played your games right? as kids running about the streets you know playing games as kids do you know and you're up to a wee bit of mischief now, it was no anti-social behaviour but just a bit of mischief as kids do so for me for the most part I'd say that I had a fairly happy childhood obviously big family it wasn't particularly easy on my mother and father my father was a bricklayer he didn't drink or I think my mother didn't drink uh, so but like other people we, we, we never wanted for stuff but we didn't we weren't that particularly well off see when you were in school in Casement Park well, the, did the British Army take over at, at one stage yes I was I was in uh, July 1972 they took it over I, I, I was doing what they referred to as a motorman because in 1972 the IRA in Mainly uh, Derry and Belfast, Republican areas, set up what they were referred to as no co areas. Now, there was one in Lanadoon that lasted not too long, so the IRA would have had barricades, they would have searched uh, people coming in, you know, cars coming in and out. And as we were young lads, we were young Republicans, we would have stood and watched this, and we were running about, you know, getting them, uh, they 
lads, maybe at that time they were men to us, but late teens, early 20s, uh, when we saw them with weapons and all this sort of thing, you looked up these people and you went, these are our heroes and, you know, the way they patrolled the, the streets and such like. And the British Army, any time that they were driving up and down the main roads, like down the Shaw's Road or the Glen Road, the Raz we call them, or the boys, or the Acnacloys, all those nicknames were all given. Uh, we would have seen them out operating and you we were cheering and all that. It was obviously a bit naive, but it was an adventure as well, you know, as kids growing up, you know. So how did you end up getting involved in the Republican movement? <clears throat> well, as I said, uh, it, was a, it was something that I always wanted to, to get involved in. And I went to my mother and I asked my mother, could she see someone about joining the FENA? And she was obviously a concern, and, and I was, I, my mother died when we were all young, but I didn't realise at the time that I was my ma, or my ma's blue-eyed boy, you know, that sort of thing, because I was, I was one boy among six girls at that stage, you know, so you can imagine a boy, six and five sisters and whatever, but she was always concerned, so she went away, and she knew I was determined to, to do it somehow, so she went and she seen somebody, and then I went, and I was then, it was a uh, fan of Cubs, up until a certain age, then he became fully fledged FENA member, and uh, so I was being nineteen, late nineteen seventy. I mean, that have been like being in, in the Boy Scouts or something. Yeah, the we, we, or? yeah, like, but we were, we always hated to see the Boy Scouts because the Boy Scouts, for the most part, not them all, of course. Obviously, there were some good guys this year, but I can't remember one fella in the same class as me who was in the Boy Scouts. But you would have seen the Boy Scouts out, and they were the Catholic Boy Scouts of Ireland. And I was then I was a practicing Catholic. I was nice week Catholic going to mass once a week and all, and saying your prayers. But the Boy Scouts, no, 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 they weren't. They were whereas we, we are going to join a rah, you know, as we got older and all that sort of thing. <laughs> so what's the what's the progression from being in the in the Fianna to moving up the ranks in the Republican movement? How does that work? Well, when you're in the, the Say the of Cubs, I was just like scouting as scouts do, you know, up, up the Colin Glen, stay overnight and night fires and uh, whatever. Then, as, as you got a bit older, you started to become more aware, and you you some people who maybe were in the IRA would have come and spoken to you and asked you to do look for things. And uh, if there's any strange cars, in those days, there wasn't a lot of cars in our areas, but if a strange car came into the area, take a number plate down and hand it to somebody, you know, and, but it was all, you know, it was something, more than something to do. There was a, there was a serious point there because we were, I wouldn't have been aware of it then, but obviously talking to people years later and they were concerned about lawyers coming to our areas, which were coming in and killing people. Maybe not so much in Anderson's town, but like Shore Strand or Doyne and uh, the markets and places like this here was, were more vulnerable. So any strange cars were coming in in case car bombs were left, you know, and if, if, if there was a car was sitting for, you know, for a day or two, some older people would have went around and checked, knocked the doors, so anybody know this car, you know, and it wouldn't have been stolen cars, you know, there was no, there was no joyriding as well as it later became in our area. But then, as you got a bit older, uh, starting to become more interested in republicanism, more aware of republicanism, and, uh, you would have went and you would have seen somebody and just said, look, can I join, you know, the Republican movement? And uh, you progressed in that. But, and again, there was this myth that, like, for instance, the class I was in on the Sal, there was about, say, 30, 35 kids in the, all boys in the same class. And there's this myth that everybody joined the Vienna or the IRA. 
wasn't that you're talking about now because I, I, what I'm aware of now obviously some people may have been and I wouldn't have been aware of everyone of course not even though I knew everybody in the class uh, that I'm aware of uh, it was about, only about five or six one of whom was uh, Kevin Brady Kevin McBride I was very close to him he was shot dead uh, military and sanitary attack which we can talk about later Eric was there any defining moments when you were a young fella that like set out the reasons why you would want to be involved in the Republican movement yeah, I don't I don't think that I think I would have always joined that movement uh, regardless you know and, and, and this isn't being a latest or anything this year and I know that some some of my peers um, for, very good friends and later became comrades they joined because of uh, saw people being killed they themselves were beaten up by the British Army their parents houses were raided and such like that but that's happened to me because I remember the first person I ever saw being shot dead was a young lad on the internment in 1971 in Lanarkton at Desi Healy he was the same age as me I didn't know the fella even though he lived in Lanarkton uh, saw him getting shot dead on, this, on, the, on the rat I didn't know he was dead at the time just saw him getting shot he, he was wearing a uh, white denim jacket type of thing and uh corduroy jacket and somebody was saying that they think he's dead and uh, that was the first time I'd heard live rounds being fired we were all were rubber bullets you know we were getting hit in the legs with rubber bullets and so even they weren't as bad as uh, plastic bullets later became so all that sort of thing and then as the older I was, uh, was becoming I was getting involved in ratting and I would have been arrested at times uh, my two other sisters were in jail and uh, so I, I just believe it was a natural progression for me, although I was by no means an ideologue. It, it was very simple to me. The IRA was the IRA, you know, regardless of their politics. You know, I'm talking about, I don't think we're using that term, but what they was referred to as a provisional IRA. And uh, uh, so th- th- that would have appealed to me. And I, seeing when you were growing up, like when you're moving out in the Fianna and the different areas of the Republican movement like I've heard many people saying I've read it before loads of times that say people who are going into the IRA either you can expect to be dead or in jail yeah that, that was, I was always now I think some well I think sometimes too, too many people play on that and I'm not saying it wasn't that they weren't told these things you're saying like you could end up in jail on the run or uh, dead you know but if you're a young lad I thought of death. That didn't occur to you, even though you were aware of people who had been shot dead, shot dead by loyalists. Some people were new, well, a new, uh, the new personally. Uh, my own cousin was an IRA volunteer who was killed uh, planting a bomb, and uh, so I was aware. I was aware of the potential dangers. But you're seventeen, eighteen, you know, and it was it was more than a, you were aware of the risks that had been taken, and uh, the possibility of ending up in jail. That was probably the worst case scenario I'd say for most people because I'd imagine nobody but nobody and even the volunteers who were killed killed in active service uh, either in a gun battle or planting bombs the bomb went off prematurely for instance uh, none of them without that saying this is my last day on earth you know right. it wasn't a case of that you know it's, I'd say like any war you know I'd say in conventional wars as we're seeing what's happening around the world today like, okay, there's some very dangerous things. I'm sure people go out and say, this, this, is, this is going to be my last day here because this is a real dangerous thing I'm going on, you know, so. Like your dad was in jail as well, wasn't he? Yeah, he was, he was, uh, he, he got, he was done the, with, uh, 
1938, he was captured in Wicklow Mountains with a number of one of whom was Sean McCahey, later died on a hunger and thirst strike in Port Leisha, 1946. My father was lifted, arrested with him and uh, captured with him and uh, two Belfast men. They got six months in Arbor Hill and then when he got released from jail, he reported back to the IRA and then was captured in a gun battle in uh, South Armagh, 1940. And he was the last, he, him and his comrades, they were done with robbing a bank in Armagh City. And they were got chased and then they were around by Collie Hanna in South Armagh, a gun battle arranged. And they th- thankful for them, there was no one killed or injured. I mean, they were got a bad beating when they were, the RUC uh, captured them. And he was, a, he was the last man to get the Cat of Nine Tails in the north here. What's the Cat of Nine Tails? The Cat of Nine Tails is a, a whip with nine leather straps and it, it was used by the, the British Navy I think by a lot of navies for punishment for, for sailors who whatever they, they were charged with probably some petty stuff on the on, on, on boats but British government brought this out whatever year it was and because we, obviously we're still the six counties still occupied by Britain British law is still very much part of our lives uh, in, uh, in the north but what that meant was anybody over the age of 18, if you were convicted of armed robbery, as they refer to it, you got a cat of nine tails, which was lash, 10 lashes on this. And it would have been a, a screw would have done it, a prison officer would have done it. And I found this out recently because of, uh, I'm writing a book and I'm researching for a bit about uh, my family and all this. And when I went down to the public record office, when it was based down in Balmoral Avenue in Belfast here, I, uh, I found out, that the name of uh, the screw, I can't remember his name now, but I have it somewhere a uh, record, he's probably dead now, and he got five shillings, five shillings extra as a bonus for a minute doing this. So I remember my father telling me that uh, they had a choice. The prison governor went to, you know, him and his comrades, but it happened to be when that was the last uh, thing, whatever, and uh, they said, you can get five lashes now, and once your back heals, you get the nerve, the R5. Now, common sense prevails. Get them done in one time. You know, it's, and uh, he said he was very nervous. So, uh, what they brought you down in the cellar of A Wing in Crumlin Road Jail in Belfast here. And, uh, tied you to the, the triangle. You know, you, you were hung up, or not hung up, but, uh, tied with handcuffs or something. Tie your hands over your head. Ah, you know, over your head. And, uh, you weren't hanging, your feet were still on the ground. It wasn't this thing. And then, uh, a screw would have given you the 10 lashes but I remember my dad I, it was a couple of days before Christmas 1940 and uh, shortly after he was sentenced and I was saying I was, he says ah, I was sore but, I, but he, he didn't have scars and I was saying why, why, why is there no scars on your back and he said he didn't know you know he, at the time he couldn't lay on his back for weeks and uh, he was a young man at the time and uh, Take it in the chin, it's part and parcel, that Aye. sort of thing. You know, so. so you actually ended up in the in the crumb as well? Yeah, the first time I went to criminal jail was in July nineteen seventy six. I was charged with hijacking a car and uh so on demand. I was on demand for six months and then after six months I was sentenced to three years in prison. And although uh I was I was only eighteen when I went into the jail, and then I was nineteen. By the time I was sentenced, I was nineteen. It was not particularly hard 
because there was a lot of people who I knew, unfortunately, were coming into jail. I got to know a lot of men. It was the first time I really got to know a lot of countrymen, for instance, people from, you know, in Derry City and, and uh, cultures, as we call them. There was a bit of banter and all that sort of thing. There was always that bit of rivalry, you know. But a, a thing that I've always noticed was that very, very few Belfast men were into the GAA. Whereas a lot of countrymen were. Like I remember well, Raymond McCreese, for instance, who later died in hunger strike. He was mad about our mad football team and, and uh, he used to come out on a Sunday. You weren't, you weren't supposed to bring your radio into the yard with you, the screws, but he would have you know, put it down his trousers or something, walked out and would have been our countrymen standing around listening to the matches, you know, of, or maybe not even the matches, maybe the results, because even BBC New TV or BBC Radio, you very rarely got results. You had to listen to try and get RTE, a GA results I'm talking about. So it was a big... That was a cultural thing for me, you know, and and uh, because there's a lot of Belfast, especially people from our, well, due respect, a lot of people from Ardoin and the Shore Strand and that, those parts of Belfast, the GA wasn't particularly strong. And so a lot of them would have been in the soccer more than... And was that the first time you were arrested? No, I had been arrested a number of times as a young lad, you know, uh, brought uh, to, say, Fort Mona, uh, Brits, three or four hours, you were held for... Uh, Springfield Road Barracks, but it was my first time going to Castlereagh, which was notorious for uh, like an interrogation centre. And I didn't get a particularly hard time, but for me it was hard. When I look back and talk to the other men who got it, all I got was slapped about and thrown on the floor. And not, not saying it was easy, but I, I wasn't prepared. And that was my fault. I'm not blaming anyone else for that. I, I, psychologically, I wasn't prepared for that. Hence, I made the statement. Thankfully, I didn't name anyone uh, in the statements. So I just signed state that's what same one that's what as a term was and I felt a bit guilty going into jail uh, and going in because there were some lads who, did, who never signed statements and didn't sign them maybe lads who were captured uh, with bombs or guns or whatever the, the kit may be but unfortunately there was a lot of men who did sign statements and it was, we then it was referred to as a conveyor belt as in Castlereagh for instance and other interrogation centres uh, like the Strand Road and Derry uh, uh, and uh, RMI City, I forget the name, but and other places. And then you were up in front when you went to trial. If you went to trial, most people did because a lot of people did sign statements. The statements, even though you you send your solicitor, I, I was forced out of me. I didn't willingly make this statement. It was referred to as a conveyor belt because of diplomat courts where a judge sat. He that judge was a judge and jury. And he had to remain. I, the first time I went to trial, I, I didn't understand it. But they say this, and I've, I've been up, I'll talk about it, but uh, other trials, he's, he, this judge has to remain himself, as all but men judges at the time, saying that I am the judge and jury here. Or worse than that effect, because there was no jury. The reason they say it was, uh, there was no juries because juries could be nobbled, as the, the term is, you know, that if, uh, say for instance, where I was charged with hijacking was Lena doing. And if it had been a jury court, the jurists would have had to come from the Lenardoon area. And you can imagine if I'm up or as a Lenardoon Republican, people from Lenardoon, even though they totally opposed me or didn't like me from my politics, they were never going to convict you. You know, because they would have got to knock their door, maybe. You know. But then as a 17, 18 year old, like you're, you get lifted or whatever you don't know you obviously didn't know what was going to be in store no no so you know, like were you shitting it or how does that I was go? very nervous uh, to be perfectly honest when I realised I was going to Castlereagh 
when it, I heard them saying that my dad, my dad says throw his beard in a couple of hours, you know, because this would happen and me and my friends and all would have been lifted fairly regularly at early hours in the morning, say five or six in the morning, seven o'clock, whatever time it was. And they said, no, he's, uh, well, he's, he might, he's six and 11, that was, you could be held for three days. And he had no access to a solicitor, solicitor in those days. And uh, I heard, I was up putting my shoes on upstairs and I heard one of the cops, uh, obviously Belfast accent, saying he's going to Castle Ray. And I got nervous and I came down and my dad said to me, you're all right. He obviously saw my nervousness. If he saw it, they saw it. And uh, I wasn't crying or anything. It wasn't like that. It wasn't like I was shaking like a leaf. But my dad went over to me and it wasn't, we weren't in the huggy thing, you know, which is no problem. That's the way it, those days, you know, they just, you'll be all right, you know. And he was concerned for me. And, uh, but after three days, I signed the statement. Admitting. So was that, that they didn't, say they came to the house to arrest you at a later time, was that what happened there? Or it wasn't like during the... No, this this hijacking, that was the 27th of July, that hijacking happened a week or two before, two weeks before it, maybe. So I wasn't expecting that, you know. But then when they when they brought you in, it's not like today, if they, if they arrest anyone now, they have to talk, they have to question you about a specific thing. You know, if they arrest you for, say, for instance, if I was arrested now for that hijacking, they have to just question me about the hijacking and nothing else. At that time, you're coming in and they were, do you know such and such and do you know this and what we involved, were you involved in this and whatever. And uh, and I didn't, uh, I I knew even then if I admitted to being in the IRA, I was going to make matters even worse. I knew that much. And I went for the lesser charge of a hijacking, you know, and... Uh, and uh, not that I, not that at that time would I have been particularly active, you know. There was a young lad, you know, and that's just the way it was. But. And going to jail then, did that politicise you even more when yeah, you ended up going in there? Definitely, and uh, and it wasn't uh, jail was because I'd already been to uh, Kilmainham jail on tours. They weren't as big a tours attraction as they are now, so. British jails were British jails, you know. Kilmainham obviously was built in the uh, 18th century. Crumlin Road Jail was built in the 19th century, but 100 years later. But they were built on the same model sort of thing, and the sales were the same size. And and uh, they ended up getting this put on a. Uh, I had a cellmate, obviously, another Republican. And at that time, there was tension for because we as Republicans wanted segregation from Nordists, not from Protestants, by the way, from uh, from Nordists. And we were told that if we saw a loyalist, you can't tell a loyalist, they don't have a different colour of skin or whatever, they talk with the same accent and all as us. But if you knew it was a loyalist, you had to get stuck in to fight them. And they had they were told the same. So you're coming to your cell and you're always worried, you know, because it could have been a loyalist next door to you. And uh, then at night, uh, there's a lot of things were happening outside, you know, when the news came on, we would have heard a lot of bombs. It was near the city centre, the, the deal is, and bombs would have went off on a nightly basis. You would have heard shooting and news reports were coming in and if it had been say a lot of Catholics were being killed by loyalists they would have been up banging their doors shouting and cheering and uh, then if, if uh, say if the IRA killed British soldiers or cops or a big bomb went off in the town centre we were all up banging our doors and cheering but then we were, I remember one case it was uh, we were told to stop it because we had, we had heard this explosion going off and we just thought it was another bomb. Uh, the the IRA, Lawless didn't carry out as many bombings as, as the IRA was carrying out. So this bomb went off and it ended up, it was three IRA volunteers were killed over in the markets. 
or at Belfast, which is where the crow flies, maybe about a mile from a criminal jail. And uh, if, if it's sort of quiet, the, the sound of the explosions do carry, and it's hard to tell where they're from. So we were all banging our doors and shouting and cheering. It was really to rub it into the screws and the, uh, not the, no, the lawless, obviously. But then the, the news reports started coming in, there were three volunteers. So the, the staff in the jail told us, right, lads, don't be banging anymore. See when bombs go off. Don't be cheering because it could be volunteers themselves killed. And so we didn't cheer. It's different when we heard the news about cops of Brits being killed. What year were you in Cronin at that stage? I was 1976 until January, July 1976, and I was sentenced in January 1977. And then when did you get out? I went on the blanket protest. The, uh, the blanket protest from March 1976, the British government brought in legislation, one of their many draconian laws, whereby anyone sentenced for a political offence wouldn't get special category status, in other words, political status. They'd done away with that. So they were saying that anybody who was sentenced they had to wear a prison uniform, do prison work, integrate with loyalists. We were opposed to this. So Kieran Nugent was sentenced in 19, uh, September 1976 and he went on what was known as a blanket protest. And that literally meant him not wearing a prison uniform, not being doing prison work. So the only thing that he could do, he was naked in the cell, was wrap a blanket around him. So when I was sentenced, it was a really cold day and January 19, starting 19, January the 11th, 1977. So I, I had long hair on the man, not too long, but uh, they brought me in once I was sentenced. Was it still white? <laughs> no, it was, just, it was darker near her. Uh, in fact, if I fo- I'll have to show you a photograph. Of it. Just somebody sent me this recently too. But uh, so I got my hair, that, that wasn't a skinhead, you know, I got my hair cut. And I remember looking in the mirror and going, Phew. so at that time, I was determined to go on the blanket protest. Now, if I hadn't gone on the blanket protest, if I had conformed as in war in prison uniform, done prison work and integrated with the artists, I would have been out after a year, after you know, 18 months, because it was a 50% remission. But because I went on the blanket protest and the first few months were really very, very difficult because any time we were leaving a cell, we had to leave naked. We were getting beatings, not particularly bad beatings, but beatings and all, but you were concerned about, you know, you're expecting it every day. You didn't have a radio or a, definitely no TV, no newspapers. The only be- only book we had in our sales was a Bible. And this, then I was a practicing Catholic. For Catholics, the Bible wasn't, it was a missile we would have read or catechism and stuff. And, it, and even then I started to question all this thing, but you just read the pages to pass the time. And you couldn't lie in your bed. You had to sit, if you're going to, then just walk up and down your cell. For 24 hours a day, you're locked in your cell. And, and it was it was difficult. But then in April of that year, we all moved to another one block, then H5. And that was the morale rose. There was rumours doing rounds that the protest was going to end because there were so many men coming onto the protest, the blanket protest. Uh, and because we were in our own block, the beatings had stopped. We started getting more food. Uh, not much more, but the food was more bread and all, because we're all young, fit, well, we're all fit, very few people was carrying any weight, and uh, very few of us were carrying any weight, and we were always hungry as a young lad growing up and all that, and uh, so and then we started learning the Irish language, started uh, learning songs, poetry, there some men who were had been in jail before, and they had known a bit more about world history, as well as our own history. 
So some of us, a lot of us started to become interested in it. That's when I started. I was a wee bit aware of socialism before I went into jail. It was very basic stuff. And uh, although I had no reading material, you would have listened to people that uh, some of the lads talking, you know, at the windows or at the doors. And if there were more articulate lads and confident people, they would have, say, given a lecture every so often on a particular thing. Like the more popular ones like Cuba and Vietnam. And uh, so we've, I started becoming more aware of this, being very curious, frustrating because you couldn't get anything to read on it. Because I was a fairly big reader, you know, and uh, but uh, so that was a frustrating. So at this period of time, you're um, in the long case on the blanket process, yeah. locked up effectively, locked up twenty four hours yeah. a day. So what was the what was what was that like? Like what was the communication even like? How did you get messages up? Was there one fella down the end of the wing just shouting at a lecture, and you were trying to listen to it? Or well, because the the hate blocks obviously built as an IH, and each. Each, there was four wings in one block and this was, this was H5 we were in the, at this stage and there was 20, uh, 24 sales in each uh, wing so that meant when we were doubled up 50 at least 54, 56 people and you know some, some lads were single sales but so you can imagine all young, we were referred to as YPs as they call it, young prisoners because we were all under 21 and we were all mad no, I, I would, at that time I would have been a lot quieter than I am now. There were some real characters in the wing. There was a, there were lads there who uh, you never heard them up the door. That's what the term you would have used. You know, get up the door for a song or get up the door and talk, tell a story, say you've read, you read a book and uh, you, you, whatever you can remember of this book, you, you talk, told it out that night. Some lads were spoofing, made books up, which we didn't know they were made up, but they sounded all right, you know, they had a good imagination. So, but on the serious point of it, when we uh, the reason we used the Irish language was for a lot of us for, was for communication, and we wanted to learn the language. For us, was very political. The screws who were loyalists and unionists, even some Catholic screws, some of the worst screws were Catholic screws who wanted to prove themselves in front of the others. We would have used the Irish language as a, a means of communication, you no know, shouting out. Uh, from one wing to another, and everybody was told to keep quiet. There was a cert every every night when the screws had left the wings. Uh, you were told to keep quiet, and you want to shout it. Now, nothing secretive, but enough, you know, about say there was anything. Say anybody got a, a, the beatings were starting to come up around. Screws were starting to beat. If there was any news, I say somebody was ha- uh, happened to hear something happened outside. Uh, soccer results or whatever were shared across in, in Irish. And even the people who may have been, some lads were cynical, saying Irish, who wants to learn Irish and all this sort of thing? They knew, if they wanted to know what was going on, they had to learn it. <laughs> and uh, so I'd say most, unfortunately I've lost a lot, that I, I would have been fairly fluent. And like a lot of us, uh, some lads didn't have as much Irish. Just, it's like anything, some lads weren't, like I was a, bit, a wee bit in the poetry, some lads didn't, just used to bore them. Some of the lads didn't even want to know about socialism. They just saw this because they were practicing Catholics, that this is, you know, the Reds on the bed type of thing. You know, they believed all the propaganda and all this, really. But thankfully, there wasn't too many of that. And for me, bad and all that blanket protest was, and I've been in jail to talk about it later, uh, in later times, for me, that was the best comradeship and camaraderie that I ever saw in my time 
even up there to Great Nye, up there up to the right. And, and okay, go ahead. Uh, because we were all in the same boat. We weren't getting visits. We were getting you were you were entitled to a letter a week or a month, sorry. Uh you could have taken a visit. Now the camp staff then realised that it was for us to get uh the word out about what was happening when the when we were on the no wise protest because we were forced we were forced in that position. That literally meant no wising. Uh we weren't slapping out because there was no toilets in the cells. Uh you had a piss pot you know, one each, you know, your cellmates, and uh, so we ended, ended, ended up spreading shit on our walls and the beatings, you know, some bad beatings were handed out. So it was decided then for, for men to take visits if they wanted to take visits. And I was lucky in that I was only doing three years. There was a number of men in our wing who were doing three years, five years. There was others, like for instance, the cellmate that I was in with for most of that period, for more than two years, was Paul McGlinchey. He was doing 14 years. And unfortunately for Paul, he's terminally ill and I met him just there last week. He's from Balaki, real character, real countryman, you know, and I was a real city, you know, city that was contrasting. But the two of us, I, I'm not just saying this because Paul is unfortunately dying. Uh, and I, I, I thought, I always saw myself as easy to get on with in, in the cell. And we never, we had a, a couple of arguments, petty arguments, you know, too young, but you can imagine it. if you're locked in the cell 24 hours a day with somebody, even your best friend or your partner, or if you're your wife or whatever is in the cell, you can imagine. But we get on very, very well together. I was very lucky. Like looking back at that time now, like that's obviously an ex- exceptional circumstances to be yeah, in. Yeah. Like, what do you think about it now when you look back? Well, I look back. I mean, don't dwell on it or anything. Just you know, like yourself asking the question, and uh, and other people would say when I'm doing tours, people would ask me about it. And occasionally, I've been asked to talk to you know, talk about it uh, at public talks and stuff like this here. And I look back on it now, hard and all it was very difficult for myself. I was determined to do it. And thankfully, I it was a, it, it made me. I think what I later became as in more committed and. To republicanism, like I, 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 it was very basic politics that I that because we didn't have any reading material, it definitely shaped my politics. Uh, it was then I became an atheist. I was very critical and cynical of, of the Catholic Church. Of and we all know that any faith, and I, I don't knock anybody's faith, it's, it's to do with belief, and you don't question it. But I, I did question it. There's some men who, and I still see some of them, uh, think there would still be regular mass scores. Catholics, they believed that it was, it helped them getting through that very bad time. And I was lucky too in that when I got released, released in July 1979, that was before the hunger strike took place in 1981, two, just less than two years later. I was aware that a hunger strike had to, not had to take place, was going to take place because the protest was going nowhere. Uh, there wasn't as much support as we thought. I believe there was outside until I got out and I was going to marches and you realised there's all these thousands of people I suppose we are. Sometimes they got, but it was mainly families and close friends of the prisoners and obviously Republicans in general. But there wasn't, there wasn't, there was just, there wasn't a lot of Republicans and as many as what people claimed they've been. Obviously then when the hunger strike, that changed that completely. Because uh, when it, the wing before I got out, uh, Raymond McCreesh is the cell manager earlier. He was on the wing I was on, just a couple of cells up from me. He, he died in hunger strike. Joe McDonald, I would have seen him. And Bobby Sands, obviously Bobby Sands, as we know, was the first hunger strike out there. I would have seen them every every Sunday at Mass. 
And uh, I, I didn't. I knew Joe McDonald. I knew Joe McDonald before I went before I went to jail. And I wouldn't be wouldn't have claimed to be particularly close to him, but I knew him fairly well, fairly well. I didn't know Bobby Sands well. I just used to say hello to him, and it's a couple of fuckle now and again, you know. Like, and he was very obviously a very civil man, and uh, there was no urge of grace about him. And I, I might look back and I'd say I can't remember anybody, any other lads who were really obnoxious, you know, individuals. Uh, so then when, when I did get released and then went back to the movement, those three years, when I look back on it now, and I, and I think even then I was I was very conscious of the changes that I had seen in my own development. I saw changes in the Republican movement. And because I had been in jail, and because, and especially being on the blanket protest, and that this isn't just about me, but blanket men were held in fairly high esteem. There was a lot of uh, not the, not that I don't have the credibility, but people respected you for what you want, even if they didn't agree with your politics. They were going, well, fair play that fella, you know, whatever. You know, I'm not talking about friends and close friends and comrades and family, of course. Talking about other people in general. What was what was the system of communica- communication like within the prison then? Getting let, getting notes in and out and spreading messages between yourselves. It would have been done in what we refer to as communication comms, and they would have been written on uh, cigarette papers or which was smuggled in, and uh, say the pen refill that was being smuggled in. And uh, they would have been written out, you know, wrapped in what we called SAS, stretch and seal at that time. I was a, t- a cling film to keep it, you know, completely dry. And they would have they would have been brought out of different means. And then uh, within the jail, the blocks themselves, the staff, the IRA staff in the jail, would never share things across because they would have met each other. Would have met each other. Not that I was aware. I mean, if you were aware of who was on the staff, of course, like said Bobby Sands and others who was OC the wing, OC the block, and they would have met, had meetings at mass and talked about tactics, strategies and within the jail. We just went along with you're just young lads and whatever. you're hoping that they're going to, what's happening here, you know, and, and we're, we're, we're human beings, we're all curious but you knew there were certain things you couldn't ask because you'd have been totally F off. It's none of your business type of thing. <laughs> but so. even developing that system of communication was nearly like a, a victory over the oh, establishment uh, in itself yeah. under yeah. the most extreme conditions, really. Oh, unbelievable. Like, see, when I think of... See, when I think of the ingenuity of some lads, like, I didn't smoke... Uh, my last cigarette was the day I went on the blanket protest and was a lawyer gave me, funny enough, he gave me 20 part drive in a van because he was he had a UVF man who had political status didn't know him at all I haven't seen that he didn't know me and he just said to me you're a public and I says yes I wasn't nervous with him or anything there's a man a couple of years older than me and he says you going to the blanket protest and it says yes and he says you smoke or is yours? and I remember he gave me 20 cigarettes park drive unfiltered really strong I would never smoke those but I smoked the whole 20 because my nerves I was so nervous from Crumlin Road up to Long Cash was about 10 mile in the back of a, a closed-in transit. So we probably come out, probably there was fog in the van. There was that much smoke. And, uh, and that was my last cigarette. But there were some of the lads who did smoke. They craved them. And I can imagine. I'm, that's why I was glad I didn't smoke. I didn't have that crave. Obviously, I didn't have it. But uh, some of the lads who were getting tobacco smuggled in, 
and uh, then somebody came up with this idea of getting the wheel of a, a letter smuggled in and then breaking off plastic uh, the handle of a fork or a knife or a spoon and melting it's unbelievable when I think about it they melted the, the wheel of the letter into part of the, the fork handle or the spoon handle enough to show that they could hide it if it was going to be searched and then they got a flint on another side and they flicked it together and then a wee bit of uh, say the towel we had it was made of cotton just take it off and fluff it up like a as long as they got a flame and then they got that flame and they've kept it, uh, the ambers going and we were able to swing things out, out our, this is the night time and the screws weren't there would have been able to think, uh, swing things up with a bar of soap attached to it or something heavy with it on a string from one cell to the next and then the smokers would have been uh, say when the lads were coming back from visits of say the lads who, who recruited smuggling stuff in and uh, who were tobacco oh, was there some better than others at smuggling oh Jesus well, some lads they, they, they cut it I don't know how they were able to do it but they done it you know they were just they were really good and they would and say their, their friends or family outside who knew how to wrap it really really tight maybe a couple of ounces and cigarette papers and flints and the wheel of a, the letter in the wrapped up and they had the as we refer to as bangle if any of everybody's ever seen that film Papillon you know the way they used to smuggle things in up your arse that's what there was thing and uh, so it used to be uh, when the lads were coming down even when they were walking up the yard because of shooting over an Irish could you crack with a thumbs up or and a big cheer not a cheer but no water for Fair and far shin, a land touching, no, no really more shin, you know, that was a, that was a thing. And even though I didn't, <coughs> I didn't smoke, I used to get excited about it, you know, because <laughs> of the morale rose. And then the lads, like, let's say the fellow I was in Sailor Paul McDenshi, he smoked and he would have got his monthly visit and he would have come back and I would have sat there and helped, I was able to roll a cigarette, you know, the road, uh, road tobacco. And we would have made them up and he'd say he had closer friends in the wing. His friends would have been some more tobacco was kept over for them. <laughs> but everybody in the wing who smoked would have got a couple of cigarettes. And say the 50 million, that was a lot of tobacco. Right. You know, but it was good. Did anybody ever smoke any weed in? Oh, jeez. I was never. Well, how come? Never. In those days, I was, I was like, I'm serious, seeing Republican areas. Uh, cannabis, marijuana, and in, in those days, that was as bad as heroin. That's what had so much people. Wait, well, that was never. I was all of us. We were so pure, and our anybody even had suggested that uh, cannabis should be legalized. You'd have been ostracized for it. <laughs> I'm exaggerating. No, no, no way. It was and all that was always spurned upon and in, in jails. So like the tobacco was one of the only kind of oh, tobacco that was getting smuggled in. And there was some, uh, some of those would have got, uh, say, chewing gum smuggled in. And so, but that would have been for non-smokers. So uh, you very, very lucky, very early. Because we never got sweets. We never got jam on our bread. We didn't want to get sugar in our tea and things you craved. But looking back on it, it's probably a good thing because when you're like, I didn't realise I had good teeth and all this sort of thing. You're young that it's different now. You see a lot of young people now; they're more conscious of their teeth and all that sort of thing. 
but still have my own teeth so <laughs> didn't, I, I didn't didn't lose any teeth because of nothing nothing sweet uh, you know what I mean like the other side of having that system of communication and transporting goods in and out is the searches oh I what was that like gee this, well the, I'd say we refer to as MERS searches when, when we went on the, the No Wise protest uh, and we were spreading shit in our walls the administration was concerned about this and we were concerned about, our to, about it too because it was all we didn't know how it was going to affect our health because you can imagine that human shit you know if it's put on walls and but all known to us it actually uh, once it's spread out it, it, it's less effect on you you know, the, 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 we got used to this smell. We were literally living in our own shit, putting on the scenes and all that, any, anything. We would have kept a wee uh, part of the whitewashed walls clear for the right uh, verbs down or phrases and Irish or a poem or whatever that may be. So they then decided, the administration decided to move one of the wings to another block. So that meant three wings that were left in each block. So it meant an empty wing was always going to be so every 10 or 12 days, we were moved from the wing we were in. And for our men, all we had in our cell was a slab of ma- uh, foam, used to be a mattress, and two blankets each, and a towel. That was it. And we had a, a, we, a plastic water bottle, water gallons we referred to, for fresh water, and a piss pad. So that's all we, and a Bible, sorry. That's the only thing we ever had in our cells. And then we started getting more Catholic magazines, and all periodicals. But they then uh, decided to move us. And I remember the first time we knew what was happening because lads on the other side of the wing who could see the other empty block, they saw screws coming in. We didn't know there were screws at the time. Addressed in all sorts of uh, like space suits. They also looked like, uh, I never saw it. The lads on the other side of the thing would have seen it. Excuse me, the other side of the wing. They would have come in and cleaned the, cleaned the wing. And we knew that wing was going to be... We, Somebody was going to be moved in there for the other wing then to be cleaned. So I remember well that the first wind shift that we got, I can't remember the exact date, but I remember the well and the word come out, uh, Ask Yelga, Bay Magic Bogu, you know, uh, Bay Kuramak lads, and the OC, what I shared out. And we were all very, very nervous. Screws are coming down, right? Get that cursing at us and all, and calling us Fenians, so and so's, and takes, and all that sort of thing running us up uh, literally and you were, all you had was a towel around you and uh, you had long matted hair thankfully I didn't have a beard then or you know uh, lads who, who were you know big heavy gross they would have had uh, beards so we were brought up to the top of the wing where the toilets were uh, they, they moved, them, moved them again what they referred to as the ablutions and uh, there was a table put out in front of you and you were uh, it was a mirror uh, in foam, you know, there's just a wall mirror, see, half the size of that mirror there, and uh, you were right, bend over, and we were all told, we were all told this beforehand, that you don't do anything violent, you don't bend over for these, and then the screws would have kicked it uh, behind your knees, forced you down, so you're you're naked, the, your towel's taken off you, your legs are spread out, they're looking at the mirror, the reflection of your arse, and they would have, uh, with their bare hands, felt around your, your arse and around your privates, and then would have forced you up, 
turn you around, open your mouth, you refuse to open your mouth, you held your nose, you forced your mouth open, and with the same hands that they had already been around here, they would have put their hands in your mouth, and then you got slapped. Some men got bad beatings, and I remember, I remember when we all went back to, this is when we went in the wing, it was a really cold day, our windows and all were out. Took them hours before they brought the mattresses and blankets around, so you were shivering. There was no, the heating wasn't on or anything, or it wasn't, it was just lukewarm, it wasn't, there was no point. It wasn't even there. It was no. Uh, it wasn't functioning. So uh, the the OC would have shouted, "Right lads, up to the door. Anybody, anybody get badly hurt?" And then say some lads got a bloody nose or split ear or cut toes or something. You know, something or bruises or whatever marks in their back. So I was all taken down. And then uh, somebody would have just started saying, "Right lads, come on, get up and you know sing a song, a Republican song, like." you know, a real hellraiser, like, say hello to Provos, or, you know, uh, the men behind the wire, or something that we were all joining in on, and, uh, morale, so, we tried to keep our morale up, and the screws hated that, but we realised, lads, we have to keep our morale up here, we can't let them see they were going to defeat us, if they thought that it was happening to their fact, they're dead, and some men, some men, I wasn't aware of it, but I'd since heard that some men found it very, very difficult. They were crying in their sails. Not crying because they got a beating or anything this year. They were just going, how am I going to stick this? And some men left the protest, which is totally understandable. And I've always, we've always had this attitude that some men who couldn't stick the protest, they should never be castigated for it because at least they tried. It's the ones who didn't try. And they would have been, you know, ordering people in the criminal jail for instance some of them thankfully there weren't too many but I understood fully that uh, why some men did leave a protest I found it very very difficult to do you know and it was it was a very hard thing to do you know? the, the mirror search is basically sexual assault oh 100% now, we, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have referred to it as then as sexual assault you know uh, but that's that's what it's been now and I do understand fully why there are some men who are taking uh, cases against the, the state on it, the British state on it. For me, and uh, it's it's high, and I won't knock those men for that. If they and they honestly believe that because there were some men who got literally sexually assaulted, there were some men got uh, say buttons shoved up her arse or fingers shoved up her arse, and obviously had sexual assault, fucking rape, and uh, so uh, and it's, it's, it's right that they should be highlighting that. I'm not... Not that I'm a hard man or harder than anyone else. I'm not passing judgment on anyone. I, I just don't think... And and they are entitled to push for this. And there are men who believe that because of what they went through, they're having a hard time adjusting. They didn't realise at the time. And and there was... A, I, I would I'd imagine... It would be like a lot of survivors of sexual assault, you know, whether it be uh, in the house, the home, or victims of rape, or, or survivors of rape. Some people see themselves as victim, victims, other people see themselves as survivors. It's how people deal with things in life, and people deal with things in life in different manners. And I would never knock anyone, I would never castigate anybody, I'd never be critical of anyone if that's what they believe that for them to get justice. But I just feel that. It's uh, not that I, not that in any shape or form should I or anyone else just turn and say this is what they expect from the British government. So taking the chin, no way. Should always taking justice and knife. 
whatever whatever that justice may be. Or to the best of your knowledge, are any ex prisoners getting any bit of kind of retrospective justice for those things? There's and this is a cynic in me. There's some solicitors are pushing for this, and even when I see, I know it's slightly digressing here. When I see legacy issues, people who have been killed, family members have been killed by the state, and shoot to kill, lawless collusion by the British Army themselves, and wherever that may be, that I can't see the British government ever. Sorry, the only time they'll admit to any wrongdoing is the day they're going to leave here. And I won't see it in my lifetime. I don't even see, think my kids would see it in their lifetime if I had any grandkids. And I know that I come, I do, some people don't like my cynicism, and, uh, the saying too cynical this year, cynical of it. But I'd say that the people who are making most out of this year, not them all, by the way, are some solicitors. See, when you were in the, in the, in the case, so you were inside there when the Noash, when the blanket protest escalated to the Noash yeah. protest, pro, uh, protest, and then you were outside when the Noash protest came to an end and hunger strike started. Yeah. What was that like when you're outside and active again on the outside of the prison, looking in, there's fellas you know obviously are starting a hunger strike? That was, <clears throat> it, wasn't, it wasn't as difficult as I thought it would have been in the sense that uh, I thought that I would have been emotionally caught up in it, but I wasn't. And uh, they don't get me wrong; I'm, I'm more than aware. As uh, when the first hunger strike started and then ended, even though it's said we thought there was a, re- a resolution to that, but within hours, definitely within days, as usual, the British reneged when that first hunger strike ended, and then. When Bobby Sands went on hunger strike on the 1st of March 1981, uh, myself and not just ex-prisoners, active Republicans, we were aware that this was going to be completely different. And this is all due respect to the men and women who were on the first hunger strike. I'm not saying I would never, ever pass judgment on any of them because there's something there I don't know if I could do. I don't know whether I could do uh, go on hunger strike or not. I don't know. But when Bobby Sands went on hunger strike, and given the time was in it, and given the British government's response to Irish, the Irish question, as they co- referred to it as, nobody was holding out any hope of Bobby surviving it. Until he, he was uh, Frank McGuire, who's a, 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 an MP for, for Westminster, for Mana, he happened to be a Republican, he died of a heart, a heart attack. Uh, Bobby was in hunger strike a lot of weeks. Uh, Forget, I forget exactly when this was. It can be easy to find out for anybody who wants to check it out. But when Bobby Sands then was put up as a, a, a candidate, H black can, candidate, in that same constituency of Fermanagh South Tyrone, which had a history from the 19, from from late 19th century of uh, electing prisoners, even the 1850s campaign, the border campaign, there was a, a Republican prisoner who was elected. But when Bobby stood, and uh, obviously he was still in jail, he, he was never going to go out uh, to canvas, the Republicans canvassing on his behalf, and when he was elected, and I remember the day, well, when word was coming in, it wasn't like the news that we can get today, you know, it was news flashes coming in, and Bobby Sands was elected. We were elated, not only, not because 
an election had been won, but Bobby Sands himself had won with a massive majority, uh, 30 odd thousand uh, uh, first preference votes. And we, not naively, honestly believed that this is a, this could be the end of this hunger strike. This could be the life-saving thing that was totally on on foreseen two weeks beforehand, a week beforehand even, well, two weeks beforehand anyway. And uh, so when Bobby was elected, we were elated out here, but we were all told to be very cautious because when we were walking about the streets and all as as local activists around Anderson Town and Lennon doing and, and, and West Belfast in general. Uh, people would have stopped us because a lot of us would have been fairly well known and what do you reckon is this going to be the thing and uh, what's going to happen if if Bobby you know the hunger strike ends and all that sort of thing and uh, but then within a very short space of time Thatcher himself uh, herself came out and came up for that infamous state, statement that a criminal is a criminal is a criminal more or less saying Bobby Sands any other prisoner can be elected means absolutely nothing. And that obviously gave us a lot more resolve. Then Francis Hughes had been on hunger strike, had gone on hunger strike. And uh, the way it was staggered in such a manner, the lads and sales in the jail knew that Bobby was going to die. Then when Bobby Sands did die, I'll never forget it. I was in a house. I was, I was on the run at the time, but I stayed in Belfast. And I stayed in this house in a particular part of Belfast, and uh, I was really tired and the people in the house I was sleeping on the settee and the people come down and said to hear, hear the bandits going there because we all knew that Bobby was going to die you know it was, it was the last uh, couple of days and then when he did die and the windows it was really nice day it was May May the 5th of May and a nice night and uh, and I heard all these bandits going so I made my way up to uh, an our place and Anderson's town and uh, when I was going up all these people were standing in the street corner people were crying people were saying prayers and they were calling some people were calling myself and I met a friend a comrade somewhere and the two of us were running we didn't drive cars although I, I, I was a driver I, I knew how to drive not, but we didn't have cars and uh, people were calling what's happening what's going to happen we don't know we couldn't, we couldn't tell anybody and uh, then when we went into the house where our friends were all sitting there Nobody was crying, and I guess we were really, really angry. And uh, there's some of us knew Bobby Sands, and as I said earlier, I, didn't claim, I would never claim to have known the man well. I've seen him every week at Mass, and I met him on the man uh, earlier on in 1976. But uh, that was a real hard period. But Adam, I, I would imagine, I haven't thought about it years later. If I'd have been in jail at the time he died, I would have been, because I was talking to the lads who were there, they were crying and they were really, the morale was very low. And uh, even lads who maybe didn't even know in another black who didn't know Bobby Sands personally. Uh, but for some reason, for us from the boat out here, we, it was easier that we could let off whatever, no, let off steam or, and, uh, and they made you more determined so and so in that sense I, I, it wasn't as emotional for me as it probably would have been had I been in jail through the centuries of the Republican struggle like we've always had those iconic leaders and there's 10 of us obviously yeah, yeah. among them and I would we've had this conversation before particularly a little bit about Bobby Sands and how like 
how he became such an icon through his writing and his, his poetry and his songs and stuff, Christy Murskill's singing them, like, is a little bit like a, sort of the, like the way Podrick Pierce was, or writing stories and things like that. Um, is that the way that, that people would have seen him at the time? Maybe not so much at the time, uh, because... Bobby was only 27 when he died. Obviously, he was he was the most prolific of the prisoners for writing. Exactly what you're saying, the songs and poetry, and then they were later published uh, after he, he was, uh, you know, within, within a relatively short space of time, his poetry and all of his, his diary was published, and more then books were written about him. And, uh, and again, and which, as you say, with all due respect, the other nine men were... Unfortunately, would have fallen to their deaths, and uh, each of them would be forget should never be forgotten. But it's the same thing if we look at the at the, the sixteen who were executed after an eighteen sixteen rising, the most you know Pierce and Connolly are spoken more. Whereas you look at Sean McDermott and Thomas Thomas Clark, and the others, they had as much, if not more, of a role in the raising, but because of the legacy of. Of Pierce's role, his ratings, Conley's ratings, and McDonough and all were poets. Uh, was, they were all highly intelligent men on their own right. And uh, the same thing about, you know, I'd say that uh, when people are looking back, even now, it's like, like young, relatively young people like yourself, it's, it's you're looking back on the history, the same as I would have looked back in the, in the 50s campaign as history. You know, but even though I would have, I still meet some people are still alive who were around about in those days. So, but yes, of course, uh, Bobby Sands and uh, and the thing that really I've, I've written about this and I've talked about it a lot. If Bobby Sands, and I'm not big into poetry, but I know a half decent poem when I see one and, and, and all this sort of thing. If Bobby Sands had been a prisoner in South Africa or Latin America or other parts of the, some other parts of the world, He'd have been lauded. His poetry would be in a uh, school curriculum. I know that Irish uh, Gael Skolna do use, in Belfast anyway, you could tell me if it's the same in other parts of the country, but I know that, in the, especially in Belfast, and this is I'm not being parochial about this by any shape for no way, I'm not saying just because Bobby Sands is from Belfast himself, that his writings, uh, poetry, would be on school curriculum uh, in Gael Skolna. A lot of it probably has to do with the context and from where yeah. I came from as well as the actual content of it. Yeah, like. yeah, exactly. What was it like being on the run? It was, uh, I mean, I, I had a, a, a I, could have, I could have went down to the, the 26 counties and you know, left, even Belfast or whatever the case may be, but I was just, well, I'm not, not being blase, I better than this here, but I, I was very, very lucky in that people were putting me up in what was referred to as billets and uh, but it didn't last too long because in, during the hunger strike itself I was captured again this time I was in a hijack car and uh, in Lennardoon and uh, myself and two others two two men were in a house in the lower part of Anderson's town and obviously I couldn't the cops it was late at night it was in the middle of the summer I was wearing a combat jacket, had a scarf around my neck, pair of gloves in the middle of the summer. This car, I, I thought it was just, uh, it was around a civilian, an un- unmarked car. And I, I, I was a good driver at that time, but I couldn't, I was blocked in by other cars back and front, and I knew it was no way of thing. 
and I was going to make a bolt run for it. And the cops took the, the, they were carrying the revolvers and they realised that I, I tried to talk my way out of it, you know, letting on as a, a bum ID. i never forget, I got a student union card and I let on I was studying uh, Celtic studies at, and because I was able to speak Irish fluently and I was letting on, not put, didn't have to put a voice voice or anything. And they were a wee, wee bit unsure, unsure of me. And then when they said, uh, open the boot of the car, I realised then, and I was ready to bolt, and they saw it, and the, the, one of the cops grabbed me, and I stopped talking to them, because there was nothing, there was no arms or anything, but it was a, it was a hold all in the back, of, a big hold all in the back of the, the car, and other gloves and scarves and stuff, and, uh, and the pair of gloves that I, I got, I'll never forget it, they were a pair of women's gloves, blue gloves, light blue, and I was... <laughs> Not, that, not because they're women's gloves, I don't mean they got, and uh, they realised. So they put me, didn't, they wasn't getting a hard time, it was just in the back of the car, and they drove me to Woodburn Barracks. And when I was down there, and I, I heard them going, oh, I've got such and such and such and such. And I went, Phew. So then I was taking the Casseray, but I had already been there, and I had those five years, I definitely, I saw it, I knew it was a change in me too. I was never, it wasn't that I was cocky, I was very confident. I mean, I'm never going to speak to these people, and I didn't. But we were put, the three of us were put up in an ID parade, and we were charged with a shooting happened at the morning Martin Hurston died on the 13th of July, four days before it was lifted. And uh, we were charged with shooting four British soldiers, and the civilian were shot. But these cops claimed that when they were chasing the car, the people who were in the car, they claimed I was in the front passenger seat, leaning out the window, firing at them. And uh, so they, uh, I was charged with uh, with that. And the other two lads were charged. So back in the criminal jail, and this was during a hunger strike, and lads are everything. So it was, what, it definitely wasn't as bad as what it would have been in the blanket, uh, sorry, the haste blacks where the uh, blanket men, the blanket protests were still taking place. But it was still a somber mood because uh, an R5 men were to die on hunger strike. Uh, but then the two lads I was charged with, they got their charges dropped a couple of days before Christmas of 1981. And Pat Finucan, who was my solicitor, he came up to see me and he uh, he told me that they were getting their charges dropped the next day. And he said, what about me? He says, looks like you're going to go, you might be going to trial with this. There was no evidence against me. This was an ID. An ID thing that the cops were obviously they were telling lies, so they got released, and then uh, I went to trial uh, on October the following year. But it was strange, like uh, I ended up being OC in the wing, and uh, because I'd already been in jail, even I was very young at the time, at we but for a bit of jail experience, you know, like three years at that time wasn't a long time, but it was fairly thing, fairly uh, substantial, I suppose, in those days. So. Uh, then when I went to trial, and uh, after three days, I was acquitted at the same jury thing, because cops were telling lies. It was clear they were telling lies. And I'll never forget it, walking out of, out of the courthouse. Uh, it was October, but it was nice, a nice day. And uh, some of my friends, my, not all my family, some of my sisters and brothers were up. They said, what do you want to do? And I was never craving, I like a drink, but I was never craving for a drink in jail, never. And I just says, I wouldn't mind a pint of Guinness. And it was a great feeling because when I was walking out of court, cops were going, but they were snapping, and I was real cocky with them, and I was go, I was cursing at them and all, and you know, and they were <laughs> going, but I don't know because I got out. So that's that was me back out again. 
1982. 1982. And then what, what followed on from that? So I was back being an active Republican and uh, gained a lot more experience again, a bit older. I'm not saying I was particularly wiser, but uh, I'm still a bit of going to you know talks, political talks, and all that sort of thing. And uh, they ended up uh, was in a relationship, and uh, partner got she got pregnant, and and she was due in March nineteen eighty four. So in March nineteen eighty four. I was a left. I had been left at different times. Brought brought the Castlereaghs and Castlereagh at different times for seven days. And uh, but what made what I, what I said here way earlier on when I was first went to Castlereagh when I, I broke and made a statement, I swore I would never do it again. And uh, and the cops they're they're very cute. And anybody who's been through any interrogations, as I would say, interviews, they would know within a very short space of time. You know, there's a nervous character here. We'll play on him or her, and we might break them down. Whereas I was coming in, even though we were all told you're never spoke to them. So you're going to, and you're being questioned for about twelve hours a day. The same line of questioning uh, didn't mess me about or anything because I was, I would, if they told me to sit down or stand up or anything, I would have not. Didn't even tell them the f off. Just never spoke to them. But you going in, you're somebody's questioning you. Like even you get, a, you get a break every say couple of hours, but say for twelve hours questioning, and uh, you don't speak. Some people are going, how can you? How can you they not even deny what they were putting you, because you just know. Even if you talk, even if you give your own name, even though they knew your name and all that sort of thing, but if you told them what something innocent about talking about soccer or the GAA or something, once you start talking, that's you. I'm not saying you're going to break, but it's it's a weakness. And uh, so anyway, this particular time. Uh, in March 1984, 1984, the IRA executed a prison governor from Long Cash, and uh, a number of us were lifted and charged with it. And back in Crumlin Road Jail, I was there for on remand for eight months. And again, that was a diff- completely different experience again, in that uh, being a lot more confident, the uh, screws would have, a lot more screws would have known me because I'd already been in, you know, just a few years prior to this. And I ended up, uh, I was doing OC of the wing, and uh, which gave you some screws were, were a wee bit, not standoffish, but you know, the, not saying grudging respect there, not even saying fear, afraid of you, but they went, I'm not going to mess him about, or as much as some other lads made a good mess. And then uh, there was a number of us who were on red books, as they were referred to, and anywhere we went, there was screws always with us, and they carried our book. In the event if you're trying to escape or something, I guess on visits, legal visits, court, uh, and then every ten or twelve days, I would have moved this from one cell to the other. We're all in the threes and 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 everything. So, but after eight months, I was uh, the charges were dropped. They should never have been charged again. And then the last time I went to jail, as told you before, it was not too far from here. Myself and my friend. It was March nineteen eighty six. We were in a house, uh, say not too far from here, and about three o'clock in the morning, cops come in. Broke a door down, firing shots at us. I was shot, Fred was shot, and uh, I was never getting out this time. There was a smoking gun, lit, literally a smoking gun man beside me. When they came in, they gave me a, not a bad, well, they had a bad enough beating, but I knew at that stage they weren't going to finish me off. 
they weren't going to kill, you know, but there was, because it, was, it wasn't our own house, there was people that were screaming, kids and all upstairs, and, and the fact that we were able to fire shots back at them, they didn't know what we had on it, or many rounds we had, or, you know, what, I think they knew what weapons we had, because unfortunately somebody informed on us, but didn't know at the time, but I suspected it. <coughs> so, uh, then I was back in the crumb, and a lot of lads who were there from 1984 were still in Ramad. They're going, go back in again, and you're not getting out this time. My nickname's Chopper. Chopper, and he's me. I know him that. The only way I'm going to get out of here is over the wall or through a tunnel or whatever, you know. So, is that yeah. that time you, that you got captured, or you were telling me one time you were making a cup of tea at the window and seeing a wee bush rattling? Uh, it, was, it was a uh, clothesline, and I, I saw the clothes moving. But I put it, and it wasn't, it wasn't a particularly windy, it was just more of a breeze. But this all happened within a minute or so. I looked out, and sorry, about half an hour before it, we thought we heard a noise. We weren't paranoid about it, we were conscious about things that happened around about that time. We were near captured before and things, and there were people were, <coughs> were going. It was a bad time for republicanism, Belfast especially. <coughs> and, uh, but I said to my friend, my comrade, I had a revolver and he had a, a shotgun. We were done for this, so that's why I'm talking about it. And uh, I walked out the front of the house and I said to him, cover me in case, I'll <laughs> keep making sure that door's open in case I had to bolt back in again. Not, not that we were expecting that. We thought the worst was going to be they were going to surround the house and come out. You know, not that you see in the films, it doesn't work like that. But... Uh, they must have seen us, seen me coming out and they disappeared behind hedges. Uh, this was a big uh, detached house on the Shearstown Road and uh, the house was surrounded by hedge and uh, trees and such like. And unknown to us, they were watching us. Obviously we did when we weren't aware of this here. And then about half an hour later, maybe an hour later, about a half an hour later, when I looked out the window again, the back window this time, and I thought it was because we heard a noise, not a lot, it was because it was, oh, they put it down that time that might, might have been a dog or a cat about or something. And uh, looked out the, the blind mate says, What was that? And he's me, I think it's a clothesline. But next thing, pff, rushing in the door, and this, as I say, that's how, how I was shot. And where did you shot? I was shot in the arm, and my friend, he was shot. I was following him because we said if anything happens, get out that window. And because we're then I was you know young and fit, and uh, he was fit as well. But I was feet away from, and I just heard a burst of gun. This all happened. This is all happening very very quickly. Shots were coming in the, the into the living. We were a small room, but not not much smaller than this. And three uh, more sitting in, and I was ready to follow him out the window. There was a big. Just one plate glass window. I heard a burst of gunshot, and he I heard he didn't scream, and just a big thing, and he fell in the fell down, and then I heard pushes gun. I thought they were finishing off, and uh, then I heard all this shouting, and I says, "Stop shooting, whatever!" And he says, "Come out," and I says, "I can't move because I thought I was shot in the leg, and you shot in the arm, but I also thought I was shot in the leg because I hurt my leg. I didn't realize I banged my leg on a on a table." And that was very sore, more than where I was shot. And uh, so I, I went, I was very gingerly, put my hands, me myself, not put my head out in case of, no. So I put my hands out. As soon as I put my hands out, they come rushing in, 
beat the crap out of me and throw me over. Didn't even ask me my name. Uh, torch and the all the lights and all were uh, they everything went out. Water was coming down from the cistern and, and tap and then I realised that I'm going to finish this off and uh, next thing I heard is these awfully, awfully voices, you know, where is he? In here, sir. In here, sir. And then, yeah, that's him. Then I heard him right at the back. Yeah, that's him. That's him. And I couldn't see because of, they were seeing torches in my face. Just going, yes, that's him. And I heard talking and in there probably going, why didn't you finish him off? I'm only guessing, that's what they said. So then we were brought to Musgrave, or sorry, RBH Hospital, the Falls Road. And I was talking to uh, one of the nurses and I said, uh, my friend was in the next bed to me. And he was badly, as I say, he was shot 12 times. Luckily for him, was one gunshot went in his hand, the rest from his waist down. And uh, he was, he was, uh, wasn't crying, but he was in a lot of pain. And because in the, in the back of the ambulance, when I looked at him, I thought he was dying. But he told me, he can't remember a lot of it. I was wearing a white T-shirt under the coat I had. It was blood all over my face, and cause I thought they broke my nose, and the uh, blood where my mouth and all was all over my teeth. He thought I was shot in the face, and uh, he was looking at me, and I was, so there was a cop. He was really nervous in the back, and I was cursing him and calling him all the names of the day, and I, was, I thought my mate was dead, because he was not, he was not bad. He, he's a swarthy fella, but he was as white as a ghost. And uh, so when I went down, we were, two of us were down beside each other in the bed, and I was t- shouting to him, you know, like, and I know doctor and him, but you know, probably, probably you see it, stay alive. And I wasn't crying about it, and I guess here. I don't know how I would have reacted if I had, if I had died. You know, it would have been a different matter. I don't know. But uh, when I was getting brought down to get an x ray, these cops and Brits, British soldiers were starting, and I, I was going down, and I heard all this crying, and, and I closed off cubicle. So I went back and I said to one of the, I called the nurse over, and I said, Excuse me. Cops were standing there, so she had to be there. She was letting on to the thing. And I whispered to her, and he's me, who always shot? You and your friend and a policeman. This cop said, here's me, is he bad? No, no, he's not going to die. And I went, all right. I'm not laughing about that, but it's just thing. And so then I was, they brought us to Musgrave Hospital. So for seven days before getting charged. And then you got your longest period in, in prison after that? Yeah, 20 years. And that was a, we went back down to the back down to Long Cash. Now you're talking. This is only uh, five and a half years. This is nineteen eighty seven, April nineteen eighty seven, and uh, I saw some of lads who had been on hunger strike, like Sir Lawrence McCone. I couldn't believe it when I saw him. He was had been on the same wing as him during the blanket protest, and he was he was always a big, tall, thin fella, but he couldn't. He was, his eyes were blinking and all that, and he was good for him and all, but he looked really bad. I talked, I spoke to him a couple of years later, and I says, Lorna, you call him? No, my dad, saw, saw him, we were down in Remand. I was, uh, in 1982, we were brought from the Crumb down. That's what that was. And I saw Lorna, this is only months after Lorna with Cook McCune. I seen, I seen him and uh, I was talking away to him, talking in Irish. And I wasn't talking about hunger strike. No, what about you, Harry? What, what about such and such and such? I couldn't believe it. Then when I met Lorne years later in 1987, and I said to him, I remember seeing you shortly after the hunger strike? And he said, well, what was your impression? He said, Lorne, you're like death, death warmed up. It was now Belfast then. 
And uh, he was laughing and all, and he says, was I rough looking? I says, Lord, I, I wasn't going to say to you then you were rough looking. Well, it was it 97, was it? 1987. 87. Uh, so you're talking... But when I saw him, uh, we were down in Roman, we were moved from the, the Crumb for a number of months in 1982. Yes, yes, okay. Uh, right, so... And when did you get out there in, in 1988 or...? Uh, 90, uh, April 1996. So, and then... Uh, I went back to the movement and... Uh, you know, I wasn't going to settle down, you know. I was, I was only thirty-eight, still, still a young man, and uh, then I started to started to become disillusioned with things we that I was told we were told in jail. We were we had people from Sinn Fein, some leadership people up to meet us because we were on the camp staff there, and we were had to go around and give briefings out. Not. Not that we were, we didn't see us being told lies, but you're going, what's happening? And then when I got out and I was meeting other comrades, some of them were even more cynical than I am. And, uh, and, and some of them who I'd been in jail with up until, you know, that then were very close in jail. And uh, they'd been out maybe before me and I was coming around, you know, knocking our door. Mum go for a go for a walk here. We want to find out what's happening and, did you realise this? Did you realise that? And I went, what are you talking about? I started to become very disillusioned. When uh, I'm not a militarist by any shape or form, I was in favour of the IRA in 1984 ceasefire. Not because I was in jail, I was getting released anyway within, within two years. Uh, so there was no vested interest for me personally, uh, but I, I was uh, uh, I was never selfish, and politically selfish, selfless and all that sort of thing. But I... Uh, I, I I believed, I believed fully in our struggle was, this was the, going to be the final of all the struggles that had gone on hundreds of years beforehand. I thought, I believed that the movement was so strong. And I, I believed in Sinn Féin strategies as well at that time. Believing that Sinn Féin was a socialist party, became very disillusioned within a very short space of time when I joined Sinn Féin when I got out. And seeing, uh, I only ever went to one RS and I walked out after... Lot of hours, I was going, this isn't the movement I, I belong, I wanted the thing. But I stayed, not naively or innocently or being told, uh, I, I was no blind faith in anyone. I, I had, I, I believed in some people, but then when I, I, I wasn't a child anymore. When I was a young lad, I would have put people on pedestals. And then when I started to get to know some of these people, what well, you respect, some of them ended up really, some of them ended up being killed. And obviously, a lot of them are, some of them are now dead, just died natural deaths. Uh, I just saw that there's nothing special about these people. And uh, then, as, as I started to get to know people there that I'd only heard about, read about, some people in leadership of uh, Sinn Fein and the movement in general, don't get me wrong, a lot of them I respected. And, uh, and I did, and I was still, I was still to say that yes, what they were doing at one particular time. Uh, I would I would never knock them for what they were doing, but they started to become very disillusioned. And but I stayed there, thinking that pe other people like myself who were of like mind. So I was able to get to you know a lot more people around the country, and meeting people from different backgrounds. But there was always this thing that not so much fear fear of anything 
no being shattered or anything like I say, nothing like that, not that sort of fear. But there's a certain amount that uh, you weren't as trustworthy of people. Like, what do you say here? What do you what do you do? Where are they going? Who can I talk to? And because you're always because you were conscious of that, and the day may have been going to somebody and turning and saying, "Watch McCarter, he's." Well, I, I, I was no, no shrinking valid at meetings, private meetings, or public meetings. I always spoke my opinion, maybe, maybe so much, too much, to be perfectly honest. But I've no, I've no regrets in doing that. But uh, there was other people who said to me later, "You should have kept your powder dry. You shouldn't have been so vocal in your opposition, you know." And because then people were going sideline on you, you know. Not that I was ever any aspirations or want to be anything. But no way. But uh, I started seeing the way other people of like mind were being treated. And I'm, I'm seeing that with other people. And then I go, is it the way it's going to be with me? And I wasn't afraid of that, by the way. And then about 2005, I just had enough. I just left. Like, was that last period you spent in jail different from the previous times and that the fact that the conflict was kind of in its latter stages by that, by that time? No, I, no, I didn't see it. I didn't see it like that. I honestly... I, 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 I honestly believed that that the conflict was going up. Okay, there might not have been the same amount of military operations as such. Sinn Féin, was, the, the trend was rising, despite uh, setbacks that the IRA had, you know, that some operations which were tragically wrong for people. And uh, people, I'm talking about people, civilians were killed in, in uh, certain, some operations. But when you had the likes of the IRA, when we were in jail, we were, we couldn't believe it. The IRA, the Baltic Exchange, uh, Manchester bomb, these massive attacks, then uh, which we weren't well, obviously we wouldn't have been aware of. And later came out about uh, the weapons were captured or were brought in from Libya, weapons that the IRA could people uh, imagine uh, imagine IRA volunteers going we have dreamt of this. So it wasn't. They didn't see it as a latter stage of this. I didn't see it as a latter stages of, of a thing. I saw it as a qualitative change, both politically and militarily. And uh, and uh, and I believed this twin strategy of electoralism and militarism, as well as politics in general, uh, we could never be defeated. And it took me a long time to come to terms. And I, I've been castigated by this by some of my comrades. They haven't followed me over it for me referring to the defeat. And I know it's hard. I know it's very, very difficult. And I know it's difficult for me, because I know myself, if I'm saying the IRA was defeated, does that mean to say I, I personally was defeated? No. Uh, I still feel that I'm still a Republican activist, a political activist, and uh, but it's very, very hard, in my opinion. I'd say that I'm a big in the Irish history and when I look at uh, read the periods in the 1820s and 30s with the rise of Fianna Foyle and republicanism being so much marginalised Republican Congress and all that I'm not trying to put ourselves in the power with uh, Frank Rann and Pat O'Donnell and the Gilmore brothers and people like these uh, no way but it's very very difficult and I see and it saddens me when I see republicanism so so fractured today you know but like in the at the time in the mid nineties, like say personally, or you would have felt maybe other people as well felt that there was potential for the, the armed struggle to continue. Yeah, 
Yeah, very much so. And again, that's not saying that from a militarist point of view because I'm not a pacifist by any shape or form, never will be. Uh, but and I accept that any struggle, no matter what in the world, and we look at history, it has to come to conclusion. And whenever we look at struggles, look, look, and I, I despair and it saddens me when I see what like of what's happening in the Basque country, when I see what happened in the is happening, trying to happen in the Philippines. We look at the Tamil Tigers, wiped, they're not wiped off the face of the earth. If, if the British government or the Spanish government in regards to ETA and uh, Basque nationalists and Basque socialists, if they, had, if, if they had the opportunity in the same with the British government here in Ireland, they would have wiped, literally, I'm not saying they, could have, they would have succeeded because there would have been payback for them too, but it's the way things happened, the way the negotiations and I was in favour, and I, I would still be in favour of negotiations, but on a level, level playing field, it doesn't work again. The enemy, as in the British, are still very much the four here. As you know yourself, I've been living in the 26 counties for a number of years now. One of the things that I've noticed from the very minute I went down there, when I was in Limerick in 2003, I was only 18, but from the very first minute, it was only then I realised how different my perspective was of what was happening <coughs> up here compared to the perspective of somebody the same age who grew up in Limerick or Cork or somewhere like that. And it, from, from, from my, in my opinion, like there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding there about what actually went on here. And they have a completely different narrative about the six counties compared to the narrative that I, that I have or even what I've seen in, on, on the street. And I know, like, through your, your tour guides, your, your guided tours and the walking tours of the Falls Road and whatnot, You've obviously come in contact with people from different parts of Ireland and all over the world as well. Do you see that that there's a very big difference in what we can say actually happened up here and what other people believe that happened? Yeah, yes, of course. And I've already spoken to you about this. That the people who would ask me to take tours because it's a uh, through word of mouth or they've already known me or friends of people who've done the tours, they know that it's a political tour that I'm going on, or they're going on with myself, and it's an, it's an unashamedly Republican tour. And it's, uh, for the most part, it's a walking tour from Devis Street up to, up to Milltown Cemetery and, you know, things in between. Obviously, I don't talk about everything, walking up that road about uh, every action or people who've been killed, because you'd be there all day. And uh, But yes, I, I, I've, I've definitely seen that. I have seen, and, and I've always said to people, and I still say to people when on a tour, I'm not here to convince people they agree with my politics. Just hear me out and they make up their own mind. If they walk away and turn themselves one of the worst tours they've ever done or it was a half-decent one or whatever that may be, I've still kept in contact with, thankfully I've kept in contact with, with, with some people. And sorry, a lot of people have been on, on uh, tours and uh, yes, I've asked that question, and you're talking about a, a, a two-hour tour that people come in, whether it be from Donegal or Derry or Cork, your night based or Limerick or whatever the case may be. Most people who come on the tours have a fair, well, not being condescending or patronising anyone, condescending towards anyone or patronising anyone, they have a fair idea of what. Is this happening? But then when they listen to myself, and I'm not saying that I'm t- I know everything about happening, no way. It's gonna, and I give my opinion, 
and it's up to people there. If they don't like my opinion, I would say to them, well, go and, you know, if, if they're arguing, debating with me, thankfully it doesn't happen on, on it. And I have no problem if they want to get in there, as long as it's not one person hogging between me and him or me and her or whatever that may be. But yes, I, <coughs> I've, uh, there are people that come and they say, exactly what you're saying I didn't realise that I didn't realise this our, our history books don't tell us this unless they themselves are politically you know studying politics or studying history and they're, they're reading about things but it depends on you know it's like anything a lot of politics and history is books anyway are very subjective you know for me it kind of boils down to drive an hour and a half down the road or two hours down the road and people basically believe that Catholics and Protestants just hate each other yeah. like someone when I went, went to University in Limerick when I was 18 on the first day someone come over to me and goes here here that, that, that girl over there she, she's Protestant she's like you must hate her and I, I just I couldn't believe it I couldn't believe the level of misunderstanding yeah. and, and it was actually kind of uh, hurt personally that someone mm-hmm. felt that I would hate someone because yeah. of their religion like but I suppose that's down to the, the media coverage and the, the lack of education and the lack of um, the, just a completely different narrative based on, like, I suppose, the interests of the government of 26 counties or what the, the information that the British government were, were giving us. But what do you say to people, like, if someone comes up like that and says that to you on one of the tours, like, what do you say? I've, I've, had, I've had that question asked a lot of times. So I, I, I said it. From the outset, I would turn around and say that number one, I'm not a Catholic myself, even though Portrait McCarter, you know, that's uh, that I don't, and I, uh, and I've, I've never sectarian, never racist or anything like this here. Uh, but I, and I, but I do understand why people ask that question. You know, like uh, people say, is, is this a Catholic area? And that's a Protestant area. Like, and you know, and Naively, some people would ask, like, but see if you went to schools, if, you, if kids, Catholic and Protestant, went to school, all these issues wouldn't arise. And I said, that, that wouldn't have been, even if I went to a secular school, when I was, you know, say the Holy Child was a secular school, well, obviously it wasn't, it was a Catholic school, and the Sal was the same at secular school. So it didn't matter, religion didn't come into the equation. Would it have, would it have uh, changed my politics? No way. No, it wouldn't have. But that question, is asked a lot, you know, between, sure, aren't the British, not sorry, not a lot, some people ask, sure, aren't the British army here, if they weren't on these streets in 1869, place would have been a hundred times worse, and, you know, and I would argue, I, I would still argue, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't that, that, that's not the case. So, this narrative, as you refer to it as, that uh, it's black and white, Catholic versus Protestant, and it's, I understand where some people are coming from, but it's, it's near enough an insult, as you, as you, exactly how you, you, you feel. But I don't take it as an insult if somebody asks me on a tour, where no matter what part of the world they're from, or whether they're from the north part of Belfast, well, maybe not the north part of Belfast, and that's a state exaggeration, but say somebody will just turn around and say, Look, <coughs> I, I don't know anything about the last 40 years, just certain things I've read about, and see some shitty film like the boxer or whatever that may be you know and base their their their, their view on some things like this or do- documentaries which are made you know by RT maybe not so much TG Car, but RT and BBC and such thing the way they, they portray it that the British are honest brokers here keeping two warring factions Catholic and Protestant apart it's that so what's the 
what's the alternative narrative say? Like, what what was the the arm struggle about? Well, obviously, the arm struggle was about. Well, when it started off, as in, if we take it from 1869, it started off very much a defensive role that the IRA had in defending areas, like I've talked about earlier, like Sabardown and uh, Falls and Short Strand and such like. And then when uh, they started going on the offensive, they believed, the IRA at that time believed that this was an opportunity for uh, United Ireland. Now, how that United Ireland was going to manifest itself was open to uh, the debate and question. Some people may, may have just been happy enough with non-British involvement in our country. We, we had we had to burn in mind as time wore on, very, very quickly, by the way, that the 26th government was, was always always hostile to republicanism. But some people took their eye out of that, especially people in the North, North uh, Six County Republicans, were, and I say they one of them, a lot of they were just focused on the British military, British government, and all their apparatus, you know, the judiciary, uh, and the economic targets of the, 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 the IRA. But then the IRA were, were targeting in Belfast and other towns and cities throughout the north. And obviously, I'm not talking about England, that's, that's a slightly different thing when the IRA was operating over there. Then as uh, time were on, maybe at, uh, the late 70s, early 80s, when the IRA themselves, based on some people's experiences, started to get more vocal in their different politics, espousing that, saying that, no, it's not just enough to have United Ireland, it's a socialist republic. And I know that it's very easy to say it off, slip it off the tongue, you know, what, what does a socialist republic entail? And of course, you know, the, the cliches about the means of production law for the people themselves, the people in Ireland can... Uh, make up their own form of government, whatever that might be, hopefully uh, it was a socialist thing. Then as time were on, uh, yeah, we started to see, it went, you know, it came full circle, in my opinion, from being a nationalist to evolving in the socialist uh, struggle to now where I would argue that for the most part, republicanism is very much nationalist. Uh, obviously, there's still Republicans uh, still involved in Republicanism. Obviously, given the Republicanism, so for anyone to even talk about socialism in 21st century Ireland, whether it be in Belfast or Cork, they're seen as backwards men and women. You know, those things are a thing in the past. Do you know what, what happened in the Soviet Union? Look what happened in East Germany, Romania. Look what happened in, in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and a much it's now becoming counter to what that was about. Uh, so it's very, very, very difficult to get people involved in politics, first and foremost, and get people involved in socialist politics. In your opinion, would it be fair to say that the armed struggle in the North is very much like from comes from, say, a background of very heavy discrimination against people because they were Catholics in terms of jobs, education... Housing, like a, a kind of, in a way, obviously grew out of the civil rights movement yeah. uh, in some regard as well. Yes, of course. I mean, it, it's uh, I mean, it's not not just a simple matter of some people saying like uh, oppression breeds, you know, uh, revolution, but that discrimination 
was not the key. If, if 1969 hadn't have happened, as in 1969, with the civil rights things as you're talking about, when people uh, the, having the right to vote, uh, men and women, obviously at that time, it was more man on vote. And uh, I was a, a talk based on the, the American, the United States civil rights uh, campaigns for anti-discrimination, housing, education, all those things you're talking about. If, even if, they had been those reforms at the civil rights, well, do you respect them? They were calling for a reform in the state. There's a lot of people turning and saying, reform, reform in the state's not going to bring about a, uh, a change. The state needs to be overthrown. Overthrown, not just, you know, sitting down and talking, trying to negotiate some some uh, reform, whether whether it be to do, do, whether it's to do with housing, education, employment, or whatever that may be. Uh, of course, some people bought, a lot of people bought into that, and they, that's what drove them into the IRA. Uh, possibly Sinn Féin as well, saying that, no, things have to change here. It's not good enough just to talk about it. It's not good enough that our, our people before us went, and they were getting nowhere calling for reform of the state. So when that came about, when that didn't come about, uh, people realised I believe that there was going to be an IRA regardless in 1969 because when we look at the winds of change that were coming about in the influences of the talk about the earlier Cuban revolution, the Vietnam revolution, at that time Nicaragua, El Salvador, uh, rising of socialism uh, in Western Europe, not obviously not uh, the, the Eastern, the Warsaw Pact countries. I, I, I'm definitely of the opinion that an armed struggle would have started up here in Ireland regardless of 1969. Now, when would have been, I don't know, you know. I suppose in my head, I'm trying to join the dots. I'm trying to join the dots for someone who's looking from the outside in. And when I think about it, I'm trying to, if I'm trying to explain it to someone, it seems to be a good starting point when you look at 1969, burning of Bombay Street or Bloody Sunday or the, even the hunger strikes, things that were very iconic. Pivotal moments. Pivotal moments that kind of highlight the reason why the armed struggle was there, because I think that looking back now, people who are in their twenties or their thirties are looking back, and they don't see that the point of it. They don't see that they just look back at it as a something that that was kind of a, a waste, a big waste that shouldn't have happened in the first place. But I suppose the context isn't there from where that grew out of. <coughs> yep, yeah. and I can I can understand that uh, perception that is there, because if we look over the past. 40 years, three, three and a half thousand people have been killed. And then when the Great Freedom Agreement came about in 1980, 1988, which I opposed, uh, that perception then, as time wore on, very, very quickly gained momentum saying, what was it worth? What, what sorry, what, what, was, what were all these deaths worth? Whether it be IRA people, NLA people, so obviously, that is, mostly people were killed with civilians, as we know, British Army, RUC, or whoever that they, the people who happened to be killed. And thousands have injured, thousands have went through jails. People have been traumatised because of it, mainly in working class areas, by the way, and small areas in uh, parts of the north. Other places were totally unaffected by it. Uh, in Belfast, I'm talking about, and other, obviously, other places. So I can understand how people have that perception what was it worth because all of us unless you're a psychopath everybody wants to live in peace 
peace peace just doesn't necessarily mean that you're not uh, going to be shot dead or blown up. Peace means that you have the, the, the means to, you're not going to starve. You're not going to be thrown out in the street because of slum landlords. You're not going to be uh, forced off, forced on the benefits because you, the, the, the job you have to work in doesn't pay enough bad conditions. That's, that's all I do with peace. People living in a, in a society where they can walk, if they, if they want to have a dog or they want to go for a walk at night, and they're not looking over their shoulders seeing some wee scumbag is going to bug them or whatever the case may be. You're talking about people living whereby they're not living when they send their kids to school or if they're lucky enough the kids once they get older to go to university or they go abroad that the opportunities are there that weren't there before. But those opportunities aren't, aren't there for everyone because no matter what people may say there still is discrimination. It's, a lot, it's not, maybe not so subtle. There's still discrimination in housing discrimination, when we even look at it in the likes of the Irish language, you know, and we're talking about a, a group of people out there who are unionists who are totally opposed to anything, in my opinion, that they're opposed to homosexuality, uh, opposed to uh, abortion, a lot of civil rights things that people should, and other societies should take for granted. When we look at the 26 counties, for instance, how, ironically, when you look at Senegal, who, in my opinion, uh, well, given their history, they're a right-wing party. They're far more progressive. And obviously a lot of it's politics, and as we know, the latest, the latest uh, repeal of the uh, referendum, uh, the likes of uh, a lot more people who, who are saying in the 26 counties, no, we're not going to be ruled by the Catholic Church. People are starting to waken up to this here. The influence of the thing, and when people are forced into a position, no matter what that may be, position may be, people are going to rebel against it. Up here in the north, it was maybe that little bit easier. I'm not saying it was easy for anybody to lift a gun or plant a bomb. It, it takes you no know, certain type of person to be able to do that, and uh, but people rebelled against that, and in, in that manner. People are now, we're, we're starting to see protests are taken, taken to the streets in Belfast here uh, for, for change in the likes of, uh, say, the Irish Language Act. You see LGBT uh, protests. We've seen a repeal one there at the weekend, in the, uh, hoping to bring in legislation, the same as I think, but, uh, in the 26 counties. But what? The DUP and some unions are saying, no way. No way is it going to be bring about change. So what are people going to do? Just sit in their thumbs and say, actually, that's, what, that's, that's where we're living. You know? I'm, I'm not advocating by any shape or form that the response to this is for an all-armed struggle. You know, I'm not even advocating that. Like, I'm 33 now, and I, even I can remember, and I think people, when I speak to people in the South, uh, were, um, when I, who live in the South of Ireland, whenever I'm talking to them, I'm kind of shocked by this. And at the time, sort of like, I mean, um, you don't realise it, but I remember even when the Good Friday Agreement around about that time, the LVF came about and said, anybody who's a Catholic and we see them, we're going to kill them and they're a viable target and that's it. And we couldn't, we were just up in there. We had to start going to the youth club up in Lennardoon. The, the only place we could go. Couldn't go into town anymore. You couldn't get a black taxi because they were driving the ta- taxis up, sure. up and down the fall road and just abducting people. You couldn't wear your school uniform in town and all that kind of stuff. And GA tap. So looking back now, I mean, that probably has has an effect on people, even people who were 
in their teenage years to the very tail end of the yeah. of the conflict. But have you ever thought about the impact that coming through all those times has had on you individually, like, um, with your mental health and even your physical health as well? No, I, I, I've I've been asked that uh, at times, and I, I can't. I'm not the judge of that. I uh, <laughs> I fly off a handle at times. I have a, a bad temper at times. I do get angry, uh, but I, I think that's just not not that I'm excusing it. I just think that's part of me as a as a person that I am. I don't think that imprisonment has done any affected me detrimentally, you know, negatively. It's all for, for other people that, that judge it. Some people may say, I have, I have issues, I need to go to counselling or <laughs> not laughing about it. People need that, of course. If people feel that, that's what they need. But I don't think it has affected me in that sense. Uh, physically, I don't. Like I'm, obviously, I can't, I'm not going to even try and compete with like, somebody young and fit like you. At, not at the age I'm at, uh, I guess still walk a lot of mail and doesn't really affect me that much. So, but no, I, I don't think I don't think it's affected me. Do you think there's certain elements of coming through imprisonment and the armed struggle and the political struggle as well that they've had a positive influence on you? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I would say that uh, prison made me who I am. Gave me, a, gave me a lot, a lot of confidence. I'm a lot more confident person than I, than I would have been. I mean, they all tend to take a red and all, you know, get a slagging or something like that, or somebody that embarrasses you in, intentionally. Uh, I would, uh, uh, education, and I, and I also think, just now when I'm thinking about the question you asked, I'd say that one of the things that's probably keeping me, not that I do it for this reason, but I'd say one of the things that definitely keeps me, what I like to think I'm seeing, is I'm still involved in political and community activity. I'm writing a book. I'm still heavily involved in the GAA and I have hobbies. First and foremost is politics and everything, apart from family. I know I have to watch what I say here. But I'd say first and foremost politics and other things come secondary to that. What way would you like the future of Belfast to look? A lot better than what it is now. And that's to be perfectly honest. Whenever uh, we look at working class areas, especially working class areas, whether it be, now not, not that I walked through the Shanker Road of, of, and through and tour, you know, buses up and down or whatever. I know the area fairly well. I know West Belfast, Ardoin, the Strand and Markets and Balmurphy and all that sort of thing very, very well. Whenever I see it, that how much some of it physically is run down and then all this effort has been put into places like the Titanic Quarter, Victoria Centre in Belfast, all this emphasis has been put on high-rise buildings. And I'm not saying that that isn't as campuses in uh, Belfast City Centre are you know, for students and rightly so, uh, as long as they're not getting asked to pay massive rents or whatever that may be. But whenever we see areas like in West Belfast and the Falls Road in particular, this is no disrespect to people because I, I live in this area. We look, if you look on the Falls Road, and I've always said this, uh, when, when, about, when people ask me to write about uh, Belfast, my, the Belfast that I'm aware of, compared to other parts of Belfast, especially work, uh, middle class areas, like some of the road or Armour, upper road, more Armour Road, you take a list of the number of off-sales, 
the number of uh, chemists, pharmacies, number of undertakers, now, bookies, takeaways. Now, that's not being, because I am part of this community. That's not being disrespectful. And not everybody in our communities frequents those places. Uh, where you go over to the, the middle class areas, you won't see the same thing. See, on that note there, I, I, talk, I talked about this before, but I walked from here, which is top of Finnegy Road, north, yeah. to the city centre all day. There's 55 takeaways on the road. That's insane. And because I work in the area of kind of promoting health and fitness and things like that there, it, it just doesn't make sense. And actually, I read the uh, 2016 constituency report for West Belfast recently enough. And we've got the highest rates of every kind of illness you can think of, yeah. lower uh, lower life expectancy. Um, and Blood pressure, diabetes. A lot to do with the, the environment that we have, with, it, with it, the food choices and things that we have here. But Cause, cause I, I remember you telling me about, you asked me, how many takeaways do you reckon there are? And I went, I just hadn't a clue. I was, because you know, I, I know you're walk up and down. And, and I, even I was, I, now, it takes a lot to get me surprised. I was surprised when you told me that 55. And there's probably some more been open since then. That was last year. And That's there has been a good few more. Yeah. Here, we've had a good chat here. I don't want to keep it too much longer. But um, do you have one book that you'd recommend people if they wanted to go and read up a bit more about the six counties? Well, it's like saying, what's your favourite film or whatever. But for me, in the book, and this, the book I would say to give a sense of, uh, and especially the, the things that we were talking about earlier, uh, the hunger strike in that particular period, is a book by Dennis O'Hearn, Bobby Sands, Nothing But an Unfinished Song. For me, that is one of the best books I've, I've read. There's obviously a lot of other good books. There's a lot of bad books out there. And, uh, but it's up, uh, what I would suggest, and I've been asked that question a lot of times, uh, you know, not just people on tours, you know, people, because I'd be a prolific reader and all that sort of thing. People ask your opinion on books. I saw it as opinion. Four or five of us were sitting in this uh, living room here and we're all asked, you ask four or five other people the same question. We may come, you know, different books. But so, but I would, I've always said that people, Google, just go down books on Ireland and then read the reviews of them. And obviously some reviews can be very biased towards that author, that reader as well. But that for me is probably the best book. When's your own book coming out? I don't, funny enough, when I was down in the Black Tea yesterday, I was talking to a fella who I sent to what I'd written, what I've written so far. I've written a wee bit since then. Uh, last August I met him in Belfast here and I gave him a copy of what I'd had, I've written at that time about 70 odd thousand words and I don't know whether he said to me I'm not doubting him when I met him yesterday at, uh, we were down for a Palestinian Leila Khalid in the teachers club in Dublin and I said to him what's tell me the truth now I'm a big lad I can take us in the chin he says yeah, keep writing it and all that sort of thing so it, it gave me a wee bit of a Maybe he knew I needed a wee bit of a boost. I don't know. Uh, because I don't have the discipline that some people have in study discipline and writing. But I don't know. I said to him, what, should I hurry at this? He says, don't hurry. So I'm glad he told me that. So I was thinking, I was hoping to have a finish for Christmas last year. And then I was going to myself, maybe Christmas this year. Not just, just a date, you know, some target you have. He says, no, you just take it your own tip. 
write at your own pace and don't change the, the way I write. So, who knows? And the last thing, if people want to keep in touch with you, I know you're prolific on Twitter. That's <laughs> probably the best place for people to see what you're talking about and well, see what you're showing. Yeah, well, then there's... I may put some people off me. I hear Garamila Margaret Quiddick. As regular listeners to the podcast will know, this is a free and independent podcast and my little side project on top of running the Ackley Personal Training Facility in Cork City Centre. So I'm going to ask you for a favour. Please go to iTunes and give us a rating and review on iTunes and get in touch with me on Twitter at OC and let me know what you think about the podcast and if you have any questions or recommendations for the podcast in general. One of the best things about having a completely independent podcast is that we can go in whatever direction that we want to. So please get in touch and let me know what you think. The music on this episode of the Rebel Matters podcast was, as usual, by the amazing Keela, who have been on the road for over 30 years. Go to their website, keela.ie, K-I-L-A dot I-E, catch them on Spotify, YouTube and Facebook and find out when they're playing somewhere near you and go and see them. It'll be one of the best gigs you'll ever go to, guaranteed. I want to thank Podrick again for taking the time to sit down with me and recording this episode. And I'm also really looking forward to hearing from you on Twitter. Akajin Kederalakara, Kenny Fiery. <laughs>